Hi, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Shelley. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms on different sides of the political aisle, discussing politics, current events, and social issues. We started this podcast because we want to encourage conversations on tough issues and show that you can have a respectful, productive dialogue even when you disagree. It's hard to believe, but you can actually still be friends with someone with whom you have very different political opinions. Please know that Shelley and I aren't experts on the various topics that we discuss, although we do our best to be informed and accurate. We also share our reference material on our website at redmombluemom.com. Also, we of course do not represent all moms or all conservatives or liberals. Our discussion each week simply represents our own opinions. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hi listeners, this is Shelley. We are sitting today in my kitchen, Caitlin and I, with a sink full of dirty dishes in our sweats. I've got one sick kid who's at her house spreading germs so that we could have some quiet while we record this for you. We've had a busy weekend of kid activities, but really excited to do this. We're also, we want, wanted to tell you we are on Apple Podcasts now, so please catch us there. And today's topic is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal resolution. Ocasio-Cortez is a freshman congresswoman from New York. She came out with a resolution a couple weeks ago that's been very controversial and been in the news ever since. It says that the United States should eliminate pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as much as technologically feasible, guarantee access to clean water, uh, reduce risks posed by climate change, dramatically expand and upgrade renewable power sources, including smart power grids, upgrade all existing buildings in the United States and building, uh, make new buildings achieve maximum energy efficiency, spur clean manufacturing and remove greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing and industry as much as technologically feasible. It goes on to say that we should work collaboratively with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector as much as technologically feasible, including build more sustainable food systems that ensure universal access to healthy food. And then it goes on to say, overhaul the transportation system to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector as much as technologically feasible including in zero emission vehicle infrastructure and manufacturing, clean, affordable, and accessible public transportation, high speed rail, and then it goes into um, other sort of uh, socioeconomic goals like providing higher education to all people in the United States or training, guaranteeing a job with a family sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations and retirement security to all people of the United States, check public lands, get informed consent of indigenous people with respect to their territories. And it closes by saying that it will provide all people of the United States with high quality health care, affordable, safe and adequate housing, economic security, and clean air, clean water, healthy and affordable food and access to nature. So it's a very broad resolution, Caitlin. There's some things in there that seem to me like they should be supported on both sides of the aisle. There's also some controversial things that have been cited 
But my question for you to start with today is why are people on the right and the right media so vitriolic in their sort of hatred of Ocasio-Cortez and this Green New Deal resolution? Yeah, so I don't know if I would use the words vitriol or hatred to kind of describe uh, the response that Republicans have had to Ocasio-Cortez, and I'm going to go ahead and just use the the shorthand for her name of AOC. I actually think we could devote an entire separate episode of the podcast to talk about AOC and what she represents about the changing dynamics of the Democratic Party and the impact that she's had on young women in politics going forward. Uh, We can table those ideas for now. My opinion of AOC is that, frankly, I have a hard time taking her seriously. And I say this for a few reasons. First of all, she has proven herself time and again to be extremely careless and often ignorant, bordering on incompetent when it comes to topics of economics. I think it's ironic uh, considering that she has an economics degree uh, from, I think, Boston College. But there is example after example, both during her campaign and also since she's been in office, about really not understanding the economics of how things work. And I think most recently her comments about the failed expansion of Amazon building its headquarters in New York is a great example of that. And I'm sure that you and many of our listeners are familiar with this story. Uh, New York had basically offered Amazon some considerable tax incentives, I think to the tune of about $3 billion to build their HQ2 in New York. Uh, That deal fell apart. And when it did fall apart, AOC was interviewed and and gave some uh, some quotes about how she was so happy that the deal had fallen apart because now, rather than giving uh, Amazon three billion dollars, instead New York could invest that money locally in things like jobs or education. Well, of course, that's not really how tax incentives work, AOC, and I, I think she's tried to pull that back subsequently. But, you know, tax incentives don't work that way. It's not as though New York has an extra $3 billion in their coffers that they were going to give to Jeff Bezos, and now instead they can invest it in New York. Uh, so that was just one example that's, uh, that's recent and that comes to mind. The other element, though, for me with AOC is I think she has come out of the gate swinging, which is fine. She's clearly very passionate about what she believes. But I think along with that, at least for me personally, I find her to be uh, quite arrogant and a little bit power hungry. And I appreciate that she is new to politics, but she's also worked really hard to establish this very high profile for herself. She's done an excellent job of that. But I think with that profile comes some responsibility. I would be much more inclined to grant her some forgiveness and grace for her continuous mistakes and gaffes when it comes to the topic of economics if she ever showed any humility after she's been proven to be wrong, but she doesn't. And that's that's what's frustrating for me is it seems like even after she has to either correct herself or someone has to correct her about the, uh, the details of some of these economic ideas that she's talking about, she doesn't seem to care. She just seems to double down. She plays the victim. She claims that uh, her most recent claim was that she is morally correct, even if she's not always factually correct. Uh, That kind of attitude and those types of responses to what I think are pretty legitimate criticisms of her her knowledge about economics and other topics, that kind of attitude doesn't really endear her to many of us on the right who, of course, already disagree with her politics. 
So those are my thoughts on AOC. And I, I don't know for you, Shelley, if you feel particularly strongly about her one way or another. I don't know that I feel strongly about her yet. I do think that it's the right thing to reserve judgment on her since she just entered the, the legislature. She is very young. I think we need to give her a chance. The morally correct, if not factually correct piece sounds to me a little bit like Donald Trump. She's loved by many, especially young voters. And I, I think we have to give some deference to that. She's never taken any corporate pack money, doesn't care what donors think because she doesn't have donors. So she says what she wants. And I think that it's not just conservatives that are worried about her, but it's also the establishment Democrats who are worried about her because, like I say, she really um, says what she want, wants to say. I also think we have to be a little careful when we when we think about Ocasio-Cortez in terms of gender bias. And, and I think we all have gender bias, including me. But, you know, I, I wonder if if she was a man, whether everything from her clothes to her words would be so carefully scrutinized. I admit to you, she has made some mistakes. And the one that you just referenced about the Amazon deal, I heard her interview on that. And, and I think it was a mistake. She has been consistent in, in saying, we're not going to let um, the corporations have everything they want. With respect to that deal, you know, there were, I think Google and Facebook came out and said, hey, we didn't get the um, tax breaks that Amazon is asking for. The National Review, which is a conservative news site that you have cited on some of these issues, has called her, quote, dumb, quote, ignoramus. Like I say, I wonder if she was a man, if whether you would be suggesting that she should be more humble or less arrogant in her voice when she talks about these issues. I don't have an issue that she's a, a woman. I, I love the fact that there are more women in Congress. I, of course, support that. I think that's wonderful. The more diversity, the better. But she has come out time and again saying things that are just blatantly false. And, and I actually think the opposite. I think she's gotten a pass because she is Democratic. I think if you had Republican members of Congress making statements that are completely inaccurate from an economic perspective, at least, uh, I think they'd be excoriated. And I think AOC gets a little bit of a pass because she's young, she's a Democrat, she's pretty and high energy, and I give her a lot of credit. I mean, she has basically come from out of college, becoming a bartender and a waitress, volunteering maybe on, on the Sanders campaigns, but that's really it, right? Like she does not have a lot of professional experience and she has now catapulted herself into this congressional role. Right. But I would expect, and I would think her constituents would expect, I'm glad she's not my representative, you have responsibility in that role. She has developed this massive platform right. by which if she believes strongly in her democratic socialist principles, if she believes strongly in things like climate change or social justice or economic inequalities that she wants to solve, she could do it in a much more, I think, much more thoughtful nuanced, informed way. Instead, she gets caught out in these maybe off-the-cuff statements. Let's maybe just think she's speaking well, off the cuff. Well, you know, I think we'd probably disagree about how many of the things she said are patently false. I don't, I don't think she said very many things at all that are patently false. I think she says things that are controversial, and maybe she does not say them in a humble way, as you suggest, but um, I'm fine with that, and I think we need to give her a chance. All right, so let's talk about the Green New Deal. And I would actually like to maybe talk just more broadly about climate change, because I think you and I fundamentally disagree there. I think it's probably fair to say, and maybe you can say it for yourself, 
you believe cli- climate change is an issue? Do you just want to absolutely, talk? absolutely? I th- uh, Do you think it's urgent? Do you think I think it's, it's urgent. Um, the resolution, the Green New Deal resolution, um, starts out by citing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We have that posted on RedMomBlueMom.com. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of scientific reporting on the issue. And what it basically says is that the earth has warmed roughly 0.8 degrees Celsius because of human activity, because of uh, CO2. And what the report goes on to say is that if we let it, if we let the, the earth warm up two degrees Celsius further, that it will greatly affect things like crop production, uh, species dying. We've already seen species dying in terms of certain insects, certain mammals, Um, freshwater scarcity, increased extreme weather, which we have really seen a lot of, including floods, droughts, hurricanes, forest fires, ocean temperatures rising, destruction of the coral reef, ocean acidification and problems with ocean circulation. All of this affects the ocean food web and increased disease, uh, mosquitoes carrying dengue virus, um, dengue fever, I'm sorry, Zika virus, other other types of diseases. Um, so yes, I think that it's an urgent issue. I think it's real. I think the science out there is real. I commend Ocasio-Cortez for wanting to deal with it ambitiously. Let's just say I'm skeptical. Let me tell you why I'm skeptical. Okay. A couple of reasons. Here's why I don't take it very seriously. And I, I recycle, although I did just start that in the last three or four years. Uh. Um, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm making my own contribution <laughs> to the health of our environment. Um, but here's why I have a hard time taking this issue seriously. There are a couple of reasons. Number one, the language is constantly evolving. And what I mean by that is originally it was concerns about an ice age back in the 1970s. Then in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, it kind of morphed into this conversation about global warming because it was clear that the planet was warming, not cooling. So ice age was no longer applicable. And now it has transitioned again into this all-inclusive climate change. So the, so the language seems to be evolving depending on uh, to, to make sure that it can actually fit the facts of what's happening from a temperature perspective. The next piece is that the constant and constantly wrong alarmist doomsday predictions that the world is going to end unless we can figure out how to reduce human-caused impact to the environment. Let's call out Al Gore. Inconvenient truth. Back in 2006, he predicted, I think, in 10 years that the oceans will rise 20 feet. Miami will be wiped out. Well, guess, guess what? South Beach is still there and thriving. AOC, coming back to AOC, she just said a couple weeks ago, I think, that we have, quote, like 12 years left. So alarmist claims, you know, even back in the 70s, there was a guy, John Holdren, I'm mentioning him only because he ultimately became Obama's science czar. John Holdren authored a book back in 1977, said that there'd be 1 billion starving people by 2020 because of climate change or global warming at that point. Uh, None of that has come true. So it's hard to kind of believe these claims when they're constantly proven to be false. Uh, I think it's also uh, because of hypocritical, I would say celebrities and business leaders. So Leonardo DiCaprio, um, who hasn't had a hit movie in a while, but he's certainly a a strong advocate and face for climate change. Um, You've got business leaders, you know, all of these businessmen, I had to laugh. There was the Davos conference in Switzerland this year. Um, The main focus on the Davos conference, which is a, I think an annual get together of global billionaires and business leaders, the main focus was climate change. Well, guess what? They had a record number of private jets shuttling these business leaders to this conference. I mean, the hypocrisy is just 
so apparent to me. AOC has been reported that she lives about 15 minute walk from the Capitol, but drives every day, right? So AOC, hey, if, if this is such a big, big deal, why don't you kind of walk the talk? Um, and ultimately, this is the biggest issue for me is the science is not settled. And I, there's, this, there's this concept that 97% uh, of scientists agree that climate change is an issue, human caused um, climate change, I think it's okay that the science is not settled, but it feels like anyone who disagrees with the, the liberal position that climate change is this huge urgent emergency is immediately discounted as a climate denier, when in reality there's a lot of debate still happening now within the scientific community about what climate change is, is it caused by humans, how, how impactful will it be. So. I, I don't like the fact that it seems like many on the left want to just shut down the decision or shut down the discussion. The science is settled. That's it. We need to solve it because I don't think that's true. Those are just the reasons why I tend to be very skeptical about this and why climate change is not uh, certainly not the top of the list of issues that I tend to vote on for sure. Right. Well, I can I can appreciate what you said about reservations with you know alarmist theories that maybe haven't happened. And I can also just concede to you that, yeah, politicians and Democrats and, and, uh, and Republicans are hypocrites <laughs> often, um, and movie stars and, and others. And, and I am, I mean, there, there are things that I could do to, be, uh, to live maybe uh, with less impact on the environment that I don't do. So I'll concede that in a heartbeat. But where I disagree with you is on whether the science is settled. You mentioned the the sort of ice age um, theories that took place in the 1970s. There was a period, I think it was 1972-1973, where the northern hemisphere experienced some cold spells. And you have to remember that weather data, the sort of joining together of hundreds of weather stations around the world, only happened in 1963. So in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of data on weather. Now, 2019, we have 50 years of solid weather data to look at. We see news article, articles every day about the polar ice caps melting and all kinds of proof with respect to global warming. And this is real. This is real. I think that without a doubt, the science is real. What I don't understand is why conservatives don't want to believe that global warming exists. I mean, we know that if we build a greenhouse here in our backyard, um, in Colorado, that's the only way that we'd have hope of getting vegetables in the, in the winter because the, we have sunshine and it, it warms it up and it makes the air inside warm because you have this barrier keeping the, letting the sun in, but you know, a barrier with respect to the air. Similarly, we know our cars work like that. We know that you can't leave the dog or the baby in, the, in a hot car because when you have a barrier to the air, the sun comes in and warms up the car tremendously. I, I don't understand why it's such a stretch to understand that carbon emissions, we know there's been pollution. We can see it in Denver. We can see it out our window. We know that there's carbon emissions and there's been a ton of carbon emissions since industrialization in this country. It's sitting there in the atmosphere that traps the heat in. The sun, you know, the sun comes in, the, the, the heat is trapped in and this would in my view, kind of obviously create a warming effect. So I don't understand the the skepticism in terms of the science. You know, I we've we've also seen 
a lot of extreme weather. We've seen tremendous forest fires. We've seen increased hurricanes. We've seen um, seen the recent polar vortex in the Midwest, which there's an article that uh, I posted on redmombluemom.com that talks about how that was caused by climate change. And so we see all of this all the time anecdotally, and I don't understand, I don't understand uh, why conservatives want to continue debating the science. I believe that it's true that 97% of climate scientists agree that global warming is real. And we have some articles, both both you and I, on, that's on different sides of that issue. Let's go to that 97% of climate scientists agree. There's a great article that I've posted on our website from Forbes.com. It's from 2015, but it goes into detail, and I love the title of this article. It says 97% of climate scientists agree is 100% wrong. Now that 97% claim comes primarily from an author named John Cook, and apparently John Cook surveyed a bunch of different papers collected from the scientific community, and basically his summary of his paper is that they found that over 97% of those papers he surveyed endorsed the view that the Earth is warming up and human emissions of greenhouse gases are the main cause. However, as you read the details in this article that I've shared from Forbes, it is really interesting to see how this author, John Cook, made the determination about which papers agreed with his hypothesis about human-caused global warming and which did not. And there's a little bit of funny business going on with how he manipulated, I guess, for lack of a better word, those numbers. And, and you wonder why we're skeptical. It's because you can dig into the analysis on some of these papers that are widely cited as, you know, the end-all be-all of why the science is settled on climate change, and you come to find out, well, it's really not settled. And in fact, what I thought was most interesting about this article that I'm referencing, um, some of the individual authors of the papers that John Cook surveyed to come up with this 97% claim flat out said that Cook did not accurately represent their paper, that he, he misinterpreted their analysis, misinterpreted their point. That, I keep coming back to that because that 97% agree has been widely cited by Obama and Al Gore and celebrities. I'm not saying celebrities should be determining climate policy, but it's become kind of this widely established fact, quote unquote, and if you dig into it, it's, it's not accurate. So, I mean, look, do I want clean air and water and a healthy environment for my kids and grandkids and generations to come? Of course I do. But I think making radical decisions and kind of coming back to this concept of the Green New Deal, it seems like there is a push on behalf of the left to make, I would say, radically progressive decisions around reducing carbon emissions, around eliminating combustion engine vehicles, around retrofitting every building across the US. Uh, all of these grandiose plans that AOC and some of her colleagues have presented, they are all based on this seemingly unarguable conclusion that climate change is serious, 97% agree, and that's just not true. And that, that certitude around the fact that climate change is this huge emergency, I think, is going to lead to a, a reaction on behalf of the left, I think we're already seeing it, where you have the ability to waste resources uh, and, and focus on the wrong programs without knowing if ultimately those things are going to correct the problem. Right. I, I just, I can't disagree strongly enough with whether the science is there. And I'm, if you just look at the data itself, um, if you, if you look online, you've, I'm sure you've seen them in the news, there's these charts that show 
the temperature increase based on carbon emissions. And you have this long history of human civilization and the number is relatively, you know, down here at the bottom of the chart. And then just in the industrialization period, just in the last hundred years, you see it spike all the way up to so the end of the chart. It's this, you know, it's the it's it's this backward L shaped chart because um, you know, it spikes up and just gr grows dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just not convinced. And, and one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, another great article that I posted on the website around the Paris Climate Accord. And I, I will tell you, I think one of the best things that President Trump has done in his administration so far was pulling the U.S. out of that Paris Climate Change Accord. And we can talk about that. I'm, I bet you'll probably disagree with that. But what I think is interesting is I was reading an article about that Paris Accord, and it talked about this concept, which I hadn't thought about, of carbon imperialism. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, Shelley, but the underlying analysis was basically that the United States and Western Europe had the benefit of becoming rich during a period of more or less unrestricted emissions. There's been really not a lot of focus on this topic during kind of the start of the Industrial Revolution, right? And that's what really propelled the US and Western Europe into prosperity, right? That's what revolutionized the economies of those countries. However, today we are expecting poorer countries, places like India or China, which is probably not a poor country, but certainly has a large population of poor people and, and below middle class. We're expecting those countries to uh, reach that same level of prosperity uh, and economic accomplishment by being burdened by significant restrictions. Is that fair? And I thought that was an interesting question. I hadn't right. thought about that. Right? right. It was okay for us but now we're, we're doing fine and we're savvy to this, to this environmental threat, supposedly. And so sorry, China, sorry, India, sorry, Brazil. You guys don't have the same opportunity to develop your economies, which I think, as we all know, start based on a fossil fuel kind of baseline, right? You guys, you guys shouldn't be afforded that same opportunity. What do you think about that concept of imperialism I, in that sense? Yeah, I think we probably agree on it, although for different reasons. Um, I do not think that that the, uh, developing nations should get a pass on uh, emissions because they're still developing. I think that global warming is too urgent to allow that to happen. I think China, India are some of the biggest polluters and that they need to be pressed to reduce emissions just like everyone else. So I would not give them a pass based on, based on that economic argument. But at what um, sacrifice? Can I just stop you there? Mm -hmm. at, at what trade-off? So if you want to impose, let's, let's use India as right. an example. And I agree, India's contribution to global CO emissions has been significantly on the rise, as has China. By the way, U.S. is on the decline, as is Western Europe, because we're transitioning to right. more uh, sources of energy like natural gas, which have a reduced carbon emission profile. So let's take India as an example. Is it okay in your mind to tell India, hey, you guys can continue to develop your economy, you guys can continue to, to develop your people, but you can't do it if you're using fossil fuels, if the trade-off of telling them that and giving them that restriction, which first of all, I don't think we have the right to do, but are you okay with the trade-off, meaning that all of those billion people that live in India are having less of an opportunity for economic prosperity and success? How does that trade-off work in your mind? Um, in my mind, uh, from sort of a moral standpoint and from an environmental standpoint, uh, I think it's absolutely okay to expect that developing nations reduce their emissions, even if that is harder for them based on the different stage that they are in their development. Um, on the other hand, 
we as America can only do so much uh, in terms of that type of environmental pressure, but what we can do is lead. Um, this idea that some conservatives have that they're doing it, so why shouldn't we do it? In other words, they're, they have exceedingly high amounts of uh, emissions, CO2 emissions, and so why shouldn't we be able to compete with that? That to me, you know, reminds me of if we were to walk into this kitchen, Caitlin, and both of my kids are throwing powdered sugar all over the kitchen, and one of them says, well, I'm doing it because she's doing it, or vice versa. They're both going to get in trouble, <laughs> and neither one of them should be doing it just because the other one's doing it. So I, I think from a moral, you know, and sort of environmental standpoint, you have to, as the United States, you ha we have to be a leader. We have to just go ahead and do what's the right thing, which is to cut CO2 emissions for the sake of our earth. Yeah, but I, I don't think that, and I haven't heard a single person on the on the conservative side on the right saying, well, because India and China continue to be polluters, we should be allowed to pollute too. That is well, isn't that, is that what is, is isn't that one of Trump's positions in terms of pulling out of the mm -hmm. Paris Accord? He's saying. Hey, you know, we we're getting a bad deal here. India and China under under this deal are, you know, allowed to pollute more than we are. And so that I thought that was one of his bases for pulling I, out. I haven't seen that. The re my understanding is the reason why we pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, which again, I think is one of the best things Trump has done, is that most of the onus for those reduced emissions were on the US and Western Europe. Fine. There we have already we're already seeing that happen. That it was not really a treaty in the sense that you think it was legally binding. It was more of a promise for these 195 countries who were participating to promise, which is very loosey goosey, to make an effort to reduce emissions. That Paris Climate Change Accord, or excuse me, Paris Climate Accord uh, Treaty also excluded categories like agriculture, air travel, shipping. All of those industries account for 25 plus percent of global CO2 emissions. So it, it was not. It was a feel good policy, I think, for Obama. It was a feel good policy for uh, other global leaders to say, yes, we acknowledge that this is a problem and we're going to do something about it. It wouldn't have made a lick of difference based on the analysis I've read. But I do want to come back to this again, this analogy of, well, they're doing it, so we should be allowed to do it too. What, what more do you want the U.S. to do? And what I mean by that is the data shows, and this is an article that I'm referencing uh, on our website, redmombluemom.com. It's from Forbes. Um, this is from July of 2018, talking about the relative amount of carbon dioxide emissions of China versus the U.S. It says, over the past decade, the U.S. has de decreased annual carbon dioxide emissions by nearly 800 million tons. This is by far the most of any country in the world, and it's primarily a result of shifting coal-fired power to natural gas and renewables. And then it goes on to talk about how China's emissions and other countries have been on a serious increase. So you can look at some charts here as you look at U.S. and your Union, the charts that are in this article, since about 2005, both the U.S. and European Union, our carbon dioxide emissions have been on the decline. Now, I know you're not a scientist. Um, we could argue what the right amount of decline is, but I, I'm struggling to understand. It, it feels like sometimes on the left, there's this, there's this theory that the U.S. continues to be a top contributor to the problem. We're not. We're actually the ones that are showing the most improvement, the most reduction in our contribution. Right, and and that's good. And I like I say, I think that other countries should as well. However, we're all still driving around in uh, CO two emitting vehicles, um, and there are millions of them in this country. I have one, and and every day we're out there polluting the air with them on you know altogether a massive level. Similarly, with public transportation, we're. We, we live in Denver in particular is 
not a good example of uh, good mass transit and, and how to keep emissions out of our air. Um, so there are, there's a lot we can do. California recently passed a law requiring new houses be built with solar, solar panels. And I think, gosh, if Colorado would have done that, we've had such a housing boom uh, over the last many, many years. If every house just had solar panels on it, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? We wouldn't have to retrofit things and spend the money to, to fix buildings after they've been built. So there's a lot to be done. Uh, I do agree that it's a massive undertaking because our economy has been built on fossil fuels. But the oil and gas industry has really been behind some of the, the skepticism in terms of placing doubt on the science and, and, and making it sound like, you know, our economy is, is dependent on it. But to go ahead and make, you know, why not make the switch? My, I, I guess my, my big point here is if we could, and we, you and I don't agree, Caitlin, on the science and on whether or not this is emergency, but let's just say hypothetically that it is, that, that global warming is real and that it's something that we need to be concerned about. Why wouldn't the United States work to, you know, switch our infrastructure to renewable energy rather than fossil fuels? Fossil fuels are limited. We know that that they're not renewable. Why would humankind sort of insist on destroying our very own habitat that we want to preserve for our grandkids based on what I what sounds to me like political posturing, you know, rather than real concern for our environment. Well, and this is I think part of the crux of it. I think people on the on the left and on the on the democratic side and again tying back to the uh, Green New Deal uh, around promises to be uh, net zero carbon emissions. We've seen states like California talk about they're going to be 100% renewable energy uh, by 2045. We see, we've seen other governors and democratic leaders in other states, including here in Colorado, talking about similar goals. But at what trade-off? And, and again, this kind of pipe dream around transitioning entirely to renewable energy is completely false. And I have to mention, you just talked about, gosh, in Colorado, we should have just been smacking solar panels on the roof of every every house. Well, sure, if you want your energy costs to go up by 100 or 200%, because that's the differential today, right? It, it sounds really good to have a solar panel on everybody's home, or it sounds really good to have wind farms out in the desert. But first of all, those energy sources are not completely reliable. And the numbers today, the average cost of electricity to U.S. consumers was 9.84 cents per kilowatt. Um, that it, Comparing that to a wind plant, the price of that would go up by about 50%, and solar energy is 200% more expensive per kilowatt. So this concept that renewable energy is expensive doesn't seem to really factor into this into this democratic utopia vision of 100% renewable energy because there's a trade-off there. And when you have a higher cost for electricity and power, those higher costs hurt the middle class and the poor the hardest. Right. The, the higher cost, though, Caitlin, is because we don't have something like the Green New Deal. It's because we haven't gotten serious about changing our infrastructure. It's because the power grids, the way they're currently set up, are, are set up for coal burning. And so, yes, there, there is some cost in sort of doing a massive switch over. But what I could tell from the Green New Deal is that that idea, the idea of switching over to renewable energy will create in of itself thousands and thousands of jobs. 
um, most of that cost will be absorbed by private industry. So the, you know, the solar example you gave, the people you know, on my block who have solar panels are not paying more for their electricity, but they might not be arguably paying, paying a lot less. It's sort of a wash. And similarly with, with vehicles, our whole system is set up to pump gas and burn the gas in our vehicles. And so yes, there is some transition cost that would be incurred. Um, but again, I think most of it would be incurred by private industry. And, and it's, it's, it's a matter of you know, taking this, this oil and gas dependency and these oil and gas jobs and sort of transitioning them into green energy jobs. And yes, there's some transition there that would be difficult and be costly both in the private sector and in the public sector. But it's a matter of where are our, our priorities. You know, and Ocasio-Cortez, she says that it won't cost very much. She says it'll be less than 1% of the GDP. And there's an article that we've posted on Red Mom, Blue Mom by CNN, Jeffrey Sachs dated February 22nd, 2019, that says, and in fact, this is feasible and this is affordable. This transition eventually needs to happen. And this sort of delay because of skepticism about the science, I think is bad. In terms of paying for it, you know, Caitlin, I'm a fiscal conservative. What Ocasio-Cortez is saying here and what is popular amongst her her supporters is that we have to look at our priorities in terms of cost. Yeah, but that's the rub, right? Is that there's a disagreement on the priorities. You know, your perspective is clearly that green energy and the transition to renewable energy should be a priority. It's not my priority. And I don't think that's that's the role of government. And I think this concept that you just mentioned and that some on the left have that, hey, we're going to transition from fossil fuels and we're just going to migrate jobs from oil and gas into wind and solar and private, private enterprise is going to do that. Private enterprise isn't going to do that. Why on earth would a private business owner whose, whose goal and objective in running a business is to make a profit, those businesses have proven to not be profitable. We saw T. T Boone Pickett, I think was his name, in Texas, trying to do some wind farms a couple of years ago. We had those various solar companies that were subsidized under the Obama administration, all of which went belly up. That technology, for what it's worth, is not ready for prime time today. Perhaps it will be in the future. But today, it has been proven time and again that solar and wind, at least in particular, those are not profitable businesses. They have to be subsidized by the government to work. You are not going to find, in my opinion, a private business owner who's going to come in and out of the goodness of their heart, in the spirit of driving towards renewable energy for the U.S. and the betterment of the planet, that's not going to be something no. that private business is going to do. So government is going to have to do it, and that's what the Green New Deal is. It is right. It is admittedly, and AOC talked about this when she was making the media rounds on the program a couple weeks ago, she admitted this is a huge government-supported initiative, right? right? And you've got the environmental aspects, you've got the social aspects, the, the income inequality, the guaranteeing of jobs and stability. I mean, all of the unicorn wish list items there is no way that those things can be supported without government running it all. Well, well, I agree with you, but that's the that that that's my point, Caitlin. Is that the transition won't happen automatically? The market doesn't provide for the earth. You have to have, you know. Um, while I can appreciate views on small government, there are certain things that the market doesn't provide for. The market does not protect our habitat because. It, you know, rewards us for, you know, doing whatever we need to, to, to earn money and to 
compete for resources. The, the free market does not protect the environment. And so, yes, there has to be global, there has to be uh, government action, which, which is, agree, we agree that that's the point of the Green New Deal. Like I say, in California, no one would be, there wouldn't be solar panels on every new house unless they had passed that law. And so that's an example of where, yes, if you want that, that to happen, then the government has to be involved. And while I'm not for big government in many ways, um, I am when it comes to protecting something vulnerable that doesn't otherwise protect itself, people that are vulnerable or certainly our earth. Yeah, but again, and I think we keep coming back to this, right? That's where the skepticism and disagreement on the data comes in, right? I mean, I That's think, it. I think you, yep. you clearly believe very strongly that humans are negatively impacting the health of the planet through carbon emissions and rising temperatures and things like that. I don't necessarily believe that, but we'll see what happens. If it gets put to a vote, I'm going to be very curious to see what my Colorado representatives, and of course we can probably predict based on party lines, how they will vote to support this. Are there some good worthwhile ideas in here around how do we maintain a healthy, clean planet? Sure. I just disagree that this is the right way to do it. Right, right. And I, you know, I think that the Democratic presidential candidates are supporting it because there's, like I say, a large body of people who sort of urgently want climate change to be addressed. Unfortunately, in my view, a lot of other types of very broad economic proposals in here, which you know, I guess we can talk about another day, but they may detract from the, the global warming piece in terms of getting consensus. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens also. I think it's addressing climate change and, and, and transitioning to green energy is a worthy proposal. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Maybe it is. I'm just not convinced. So listeners, I know we have talked about, especially in today's conversation, a lot of data points. Um, I think Shelly and I tried to reference the articles or the source uh, as we were talking about them, but we probably didn't the entire time. So please know all of the data and the sources uh, that we were able to find to kind of prepare for today's conversation are available at redmombluemom.com. As always, we encourage you to read those and, of course, form your own opinions. But as, as always, if you have comments or feedback, please email Email us at redmombluemompodcast at gmail.com. We would sure love to hear from you. Uh, And again, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.